Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. Today, I'm joined by our first repeat guest. His name is Martin Toomey from the Offshore Consulting Group, LLC. And we decided to have Martin back on because, A, it's always good talking to him and doubling down uh, on some really important topics. But B, he got a Yeti mic. He got a new mic. So <laughs> so we thought he'd celebrate and, and break it in. Perfect. Well, thanks for having me back on. I appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm sure uh, it was just as popular with your viewers as it was with mine. I got quite a bit of uh, good content out of our last interview. So I'm looking forward to this one. Awesome. So you, you heard back uh, from people that follow you that they enjoyed the episode? Definitely. I'm sure more than a few of them went over and followed you as well. So Today, we were thinking we would actually do a bit of a deeper dive on residency. And this is going to be a treat for our audience because I find that um, it's hard to get this information, especially in audio format. You know, you listen to Nomad Capitalist or something, and they'll just kind of say that like a program exists and maybe like a couple lines, but they don't really get into the the details and the tactics and what's really involved. Like, like what appointments do you need to make? How much is it going to cost? Like, where do I have to go? How many steps are there? How, how long do I have to wait in between steps? Things like that. So hopefully we're going to make that a little bit clear in this episode and provide some value. Uh, first, we'll, I guess we'll talk about residency in Mexico and then uh, we'll take it from there. How's that sound? It sounds great. Um, so, and I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, Mexico started cracking down on the people that were kind of abusing the, the tourist visa. So they would come into the country, they were essentially living in Mexico and they would come in and they would stay, you know, four or five or, or just under that six month mark. Uh, cause a lot of times you'll get 180 days when you come into Mexico and then they would leave for, you know, a week or something like that. And then they would come back. Um, and it was a, they were based on a perpetual tourist visa. And recently, Mexico started cracking down on that. Um, is that one of the reasons that you guys decided to go with temporary residency? No, we actually started doing this before the crackdown, right before the crackdowns. So they really started cracking down on tourist visas anecdotally um, in around October 2021. And mm -hmm. hearing more and more anecdotes, especially in November and in December. Yeah. So I had... Quite a few clients reach out about that. Um, and one of the, <clears throat> I hesitate to call it a, a loophole, um, but something that we're taking advantage of right now is Mexico has a program that if you are actually technically in the country illegally, as in your tourist visa has expired, um, they're allowing you the opportunity to immediately turn that into temporary or permanent residency. And a lot of my clients have been able to get permanent residency out of it. Um, just by going to INM and applying. And essentially what you need for that is you had to have been in Mexico in 2020 and have a visa from INM. And it's going to be in their system. They can look you up. But quite a few people are taking advantage of that right now. And it's an extremely cheap way to get your permanent residency in Mexico. And technically, you don't even have to be in Mexico to take advantage of that program. Uh, we've been able to get it for several of our clients that have already returned to the U.S. Oh, wow. um, it's not in the um, original idea of the program that the Mexican government had laid out, but uh, it's still well within the regulation of 
um, of how they created it that we can take advantage of it. Mexico tends to make it easier for people that want to live there, people that want to work there, contribute to the economy and everything else. Um, there's a lot of countries in the world right now, particularly in the West, that seem to be shunning um, people that want to innovate and entrepreneurs and people with money. And then luckily there's countries like Mexico that are welcoming people like that with open arms. That's one Definitely. of the things I really appreciate about Mexico, not to mention in, in the last two years of craziness, um, at least from the statistics that I can find, they were the, they enforced the least regulations of any country in the world. My thought for you, so it's kind of interesting that they were, they're sort of tightening on the tourist visa, uh, but they're being pretty generous with the residency visa. Um, so that's one way you could look at it. Um, question for you, how, how, what's the situation in which people are getting permanent residency directly from the regularization? Because I've only heard of people getting temporary. So we have a couple lawyers um, that are on our team in Mexico. And through them, we're able to get clients permanent residency um, as long as they've traveled to Mexico and have record with the INM um, in 2020. So as long as they've traveled there and and prior to this was a recent, very, very recent change in the last week. Uh, prior to that change, um, as long as they had been to Mexico once before, and I think INM could go back three years or something like that. So anytime in the last three years, if they had actually gone into Mexico, they were eligible for uh, the permanent residency program that way. One thing I've learned about Mexico, and, and it applies to pretty much every Latin country, is there's there's always a way. And, and it's not necessarily illegal. Um, it's all within the bounds and confines of the regulation. Um, but a lot of these regulations are purposely written pretty vague. So we can take advantage of certain loopholes. And this is one of the programs that we were using to our advantage and able to get clients their permanent residency. Uh, and a lot of times we were able to do it without them having to prove solvency, um, which is having a certain amount of money in their bank account or a certain amount of income every single month that wasn't location dependent, as in they right. could it's live in Mexico. So the people who are getting that you're aware of getting in under this regularization program that we're talking about, uh, are some of them also having to show solvency? Because in my mind, those are two different programs. They are, um, and it, it depends on what INM agent that um, you end up talking to. A few of them will ask to make sure that you're economically solvent to actually live in the country and you're not going to be a burden on the system. It's not the same thing as like the Pensionario Rentista Visa, where you legitimately have to supply bank account statements, award letters, anything like that, and prove your solvency. They just kind of want a general idea that you do make a certain amount of money. Okay, gotcha. Just sort of helps the 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 agent sort of get over the hump that right. you know, that they feel comfortable signing the documents. And so if these people uh, are getting a uh, permanent residency visa straight off the regularization, um, is that typically a two, two or five year or, or what duration permanent residency is that? Or does it have one? This is where things get a little interesting. Uh, depending on the INM agent and how they're feeling that particular day, you could get, um, you could, it could be a requirement to have two years permanent residency uh, prior to applying for citizenship. 
It could be one year. Um, we've had a few clients that for whatever reason, it was one year that they had to be a permanent residence before they could apply for their citizenship. And in a couple cases, they had to do the full five years, but the vast majority of them didn't have to do the five years. Okay. And I wasn't even asking about uh, applying for citizenship after getting the residency, though that's a good question. And I'll follow up on that. But like, so let's just say you're coming off, you're, you're, you're in Mexico, you're on the tourist visa, you want to do regularization. Um, and ideally permanent residency would be better than temporary, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, does do temporary residencies have an expiry date? I'm pretty sure they do need to be renewed at some point, right? I've, I so rarely deal with the temporary. Um, I want to say it's 10 years. For it might be five years like permanent. Um, but it, for some reason, I want to think it's 10. I don't know. We, we rarely, rarely ever have to deal with a temporary permit. Um, the only ones that we've actually dealt with is if a client has a temporary residency permit and they want to exchange it for a permanent. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask that about too. So you're, you're definitely catching the questions. I'm, I, I haven't mentioned temporary yet. So let's just talk purely about permanent residency. Uh, and we could look this up, but um, does permanent residency have an ex expiration date in Mexico? Like, is it a five-year permanent residency visa? Because uh, some countries it's like forever and some of them it is renewable after a certain period. So theoretically, it's a five-year expiration, but it's an automatic renewal. Uh -huh. So if you get your permanent residency, you know, the normal route, go through a consulate appointment, go down to your INM appointment three to five weeks in country to get your plastic permanent residency card, it will expire in five years. But it's an automatic residency. You submit a form via the mail and it's automatically renewed. Um, what most of our clients want to do, however, is take the next step and get into citizenship at the end of their uh, whatever time period INM had said that they need to do permanent residency. Got it. Um, and before we get to the citizenship, so and then are the I guess the permanent residency, I guess, is typically always the same duration from what you're seeing, like it's always the five year auto renewal. Is there such thing as like a two-year perm residency or a shorter duration, or is it or is it always five year? If you if you go the traditional route and you schedule an appointment with your consulate in your country and then um, bring them all the paperwork, they sign off on you. Then you make your INM appointment within thirty days in Mexico. Um, if you go the traditional route, it's five years. Being able to utilize some of these programs. Um, that we've been discussing that Mexico has put forward, we can get it down to uh, two years and in a few rare cases, one year uh, permanent residency. Prior to citizenship. Yes. Well, and or renewal as permanent resident. Got it. And then so my other question was, because um, we kind of skipped temporary a little bit, because in my experience, most people getting in under regularization um, are receiving temporary permits. And in my experience, what's cool about it is what I've seen, uh, at least typically through Quintana Roo, is that people are receiving four-year temporary residence permits, which is cool because prior to this regularization program, my understanding is that most people who were applying for residency in Mexico were first receiving a one-year temporary. Mm -hmm. So people used to only get a one-year, and then they and then on that first renewal. Uh, they would get a four-year. 
They would get like a three or four year. And so what's cool about the regularization is the regularization people are actually skipping that one year and they're going straight into a four year in my experience. But I'm guessing that, you know, different, uh, different offices in different states might be issuing different uh, time periods. So I was just wondering if what you had seen would line up with what I just described. Honestly, and maybe it's because we're not applying for it that way, uh, but very, very few of our clients actually get temporary residency. A few of them, um, just because of income and everything else, they were downgraded to temporary. Uh, and essentially they were given a year to come up with the appropriate documents and everything else that they needed, and then they could reapply for permanent residency. Um, what I found is it varies state by state. Um, and even within the state, depending on um, what INM agent you speak to that day, like we have a contact in INM Playa del Carmen, and we've been able to get a lot of our two-year permanent residency permits through her. Okay. Um, cool. So, so you've been typically getting permanent residency for people right off the bat, which is sweet. So let's just say I had a friend, um, that, that, uh, had already gone through the program or was in Mexico for one reason or another, and they were already on a temporary residency permit. Um, are you able to, uh, upgrade quote unquote that person or convert them into permanent residency? Uh, and if so, what would that process look like? So a lot of times uh, our immigration lawyers that we have on our team in Mexico are able to get that done. Um, but again, as I've said multiple times, it, it really depends on the, the INM agent that you get that day. If, if they want to cooperate with you, then no problem. We, we've been able to upgrade quite a few permits. If you catch them on an off day, then you might as well just come back to INM a different day because you're not going to get anything done or, or you're going to get the siesta sign um, when you go, try to go up to the window. Gotcha. So hit or miss, but potentially possible to get converted from temp to yeah. permanent. A lot of our immigration agents have been doing um, it for quite a few years. So they have a lot of contacts in INM already. So a lot of it, 99% of it is going to get done via email and phone calls on their end prior to you ever stepping foot in INM. You'll already have an appointment set up. You're meeting with the correct INM agent, and it goes super smooth. Uh, that's not to say it's it's still LATAM. Uh, there are wrenches in the works some days. So, okay. And what what documentation would someone need to bring uh, if they wanted to? I guess a do a a cold from scratch uh, application. And what would the documentation look from temp to permanent, as we were kind of discussing? Would be the same. Excuse me. So if, if you want to do it, and by cold, I assume you're meaning straight from consulate in your country and then um, go through the paperwork with them and then go to Mexico and with to your INM appointment. Yeah, I, well, I guess there's like three, four different scenarios, so it might be different for each one. But so let's get, let's just wrap the discussion on the temp to permanent, because I think that is interesting and very rarely talked about. So if someone already had temp, they were already in Mexico and they wanted to upgrade to permanent. Uh, is is it almost like a brand new process? Uh, what what in you know would they need a, a police check and a birth certificate? What what kind of information would would someone need to do that? 
Um, nine times out of 10, you're not going to need any of that. They're going to want to have a couple copies of the signature page of your passport. And a few times they've actually requested bank statements. So a lot of times we just have our clients already have them printed out. We haven't had an issue with uh, them requiring translations and, and apostilles and everything so far. Um, we've been able to get around that. So it's, it's been a, a really, really easy process upgrading most of our clients. Okay, that's awesome. Um, that sounds really cool. And so I guess to clarify for some people in my mind, some of the benefits um, or maybe we could come back to the benefits later because that's like a bit of its own discussion, uh, like pros and cons of temp versus permanent. Okay. And then uh, for someone that was to apply from scratch, either they're already in Mexico on a tourist visa or they're in their home country, um, what is someone going to need to start applying for their very first Mexican residency? So a lot of it depends on if you've traveled to Mexico in the last couple of years. If you have, um, then our immigration lawyers can typically get you permanent residency with uh, by skipping the consulate visit, going directly to INM, um, and not having to submit near as much paperwork. If you, however, have not traveled to Mexico, then you're going to have to go through consulate in your country first, which most of them are at least three months out on appointments. Um, like the one here in Phoenix, I think is six months out right now. Um, so you're going to have to wait around for your appointment. You're going to have to bring in notarized and apostilled um, passport documents, bank statements, um, any award letters from like Social Security, VA, um, your birth certificate and a FBI background check for, for Americans. Now, essentially, our Canadian clients have to do their same thing, but through their government. So you're going to present all of this at your consular appointment. They're either going to give you, you know, a go or a no go. If they give you a go, then within 30 days, you have to make an appointment within INM um, at any of the different INM locations in Mexico. Set your appointment there and then bring all of the paperwork again. Check into the INM. They'll go over all your paperwork, give you a go or no go. If they give you a go, then you sit around for three to five weeks in Mexico waiting on your plastic permanent residency card. If you leave Mexico, you the, the entire process starts over again and you have to go and make another appointment at consulate. Yeah. So while you're, uh, you can't leave while your thing's in progress, while you're waiting Correct. on it. So a lot of times with the other ones, um, if you've had travel to Mexico, um, what our lawyers are able to do is get all your item stuff handled, get you your appointment already have the docs, anything that they're going to need, already done it and at INM. We're gonna, you, they're, you're going to fly in Playa del Carmen, La Paz, um, one of those locations. You're going to go to your appointment on Monday, You know, sign everything, go over everything, and then usually by Friday you can have your permanent residency card in hand and leave the country. Okay, cool. And speaking of La Paz, um, I've heard that things work a little bit different in that office. Very different. But it's, it's, it's different in every state. So, Yeah, I almost feel like, yeah, I, 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 and we, I don't know uh, anything about some of the smaller uh, states, but I've definitely, you know, Quintana Roo has its own way of doing things. La Paz, Baja California Sur has its own way of doing things, not just with immigration, but 
even like different rules like regarding like importing cars and stuff are different in Baja. Absolutely. Because um, it's the tourist area all the way down almost. It's yeah, not like then, the rest of Mexico. Correct. And then um, Mexico City, I think, is in a little bit of a league of its own. That doesn't mean it's more easier or more difficult, but it's like its own thing, sort of, the Mexico mm -hmm. City. And then the rest of the states, it's like a little bit like whatever. Even down to like the city level, it's a little bit different everywhere. Um, you know, the state of Morelos is actually famous for just having like cheap uh, the driver, the license plates, license plates. Right. And so, and so when you're in Mexico, you'll actually notice seemingly very high number of Morelos license plates all over the place because it has the cheapest fee of any mm -hmm. state in Mexico. And so a lot of people just do it through Morelos to have a cheaper like renewal fee. So that's just like one random example of how things are a little bit different in different places. I've heard something about driver's licenses in Puebla um, we're you know, and things like that. So there's, it's just a little bit different in every state. Um, and, uh, I guess that's part of the fun of being, um, <laughs> being in the, uh, the offshore consultancy industry like yourself is you get a, you get a find out these little quirks. Yep, exactly. And, th and that's why it's so important that we have an actual team on ground. Um, I've seen a lot of these offshore companies that say that they're going to help people. Um, but it's usually, you know, one or two guys based in the U.S. or based in Canada or based in the U.K. and don't have anybody on the ground in any of these countries to actually get anything done. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're aware, having lived in Mexico and been to other LATAM countries, you can't get anything done unless you know some locals um, and they know how the actual process works. And even then, you're going to find siesta days where government employees don't want to do anything and you're not going to get anything done. Uh, do you have any other just like quick anecdotes of how things might work different in different states in, in like central Mexico? So our two strongest teams is La Paz and Playa del Carmen. Um, that's where we tend to do the most <clears throat> for stuff for our clients, just because that's where our teams are based. Mm -hmm. um, that's where our immigration lawyers are. We have had to do a little bit of stuff in Jalisco for a client. Um, so we started building out a team there. Um, Sinaloa, we had some stuff there. Sinaloa was um, a really interesting place to try to get anything done in. Um, and I, I kind of hesitate to say this, but that was probably the most corrupt government I've ever seen in Mexico. So Sinaloa uh, is home to Mazatlan, which is one of the most livable cities in Mexico. It's amazing on the beach, has direct flights from Canada and, and different places in the States. So lots of retirees are moving there. Awesome spot. But the capital of Sinaloa is Culiacan, mm -hmm. which is uh, a pretty notorious spot. So I'm guessing that any, um, you know, visa type stuff and any of this residency type stuff has to happen in Culiacan. Yeah. And there was, I mean, it's not that unusual to be asked to pay a bribe when you're trying to get stuff done with government officials. And most of the time you can just tell them, no, you're not going to pay it. And you know, they don't even say anything about it. Um, in that state, you could not get anything done without paying a bribe. 
Like it was just not going to happen. They would, they would hang up on you, uh, stop answering emails, everything. This, this is uh, what people are tuning in for. This is the, the content you won't hear anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I don't want to take it to, to, you know, sound like I'm painting Mexico in a bad light or Sinaloa in a bad light. Um, it, it was just, you know, for one particular client that we had to do some work in that area, that was what we ran into. Um, and, I, and I know Mexico is kind of known for uh, the bribes and things like that. But in all reality, it's actually gotten quite a bit better in the last 10 years. Um, and, and personally, I don't really, nine times out of 10, I don't care about a bribe. Um, if federalities stop you and they want 20 bucks, I don't care. That 20 bucks is going to feed their family for the next two, three weeks, maybe a month. You know, what's 20 bucks to you or I? Nothing. So should you have to pay bribes and everything else? No, but it's kind of been a way of life in a lot of countries around the world. We're not going to change that anytime soon. And if it's not a big impact on your life, I don't really see a problem with it. Plus, it makes it a lot easier to get stuff done that you can't get done in the U.S. or Canada or the U.K. Yeah, I definitely prefer like more of like a white hat approach, but it's definitely interesting. At very least, it's like intellectually interesting to know uh, where it might be different in different places. Um, but I'll, we can move on so, so we don't catch you in any... Uh, Say, and any, saying anything, you know, I don't even know. But anyway, so, okay, a couple of things we can uh, talk about. One would be sort of the benefits slash differences between temp and permanent residency. And, and then we can sort of talk a bit about the permanent resident to citizenship track. So let's start with the temp to permanent or temp versus permanent resident. So I think in my mind, one of the biggest benefits of being a temp resident and not a permanent resident, uh, is that you can drive a foreign plated car in Mexico mm -hmm. as a temporary resident. Correct. So you can drive your Ontario or your Texas car in Mexico for, and you could be a, a temporary resident for like four years. So it could be like four years with your own car, you know, with your favorite sound system and all that in Mexico. But once you become a permanent resident, uh, you no longer have that option. And as a permanent resident, you cannot drive a foreign plated car in Mexico. Uh, you'll have to basically like buy a car in Mexico or, or go through sort of like a formal car import process. That's my understanding. That's, that's the biggest difference. And I'll throw a personal anecdote in about this. Um, if you're a permanent resident, you can have your car impounded if you're driving it on foreign plates. Okay. Now, here's the thing about importing your vehicle from um, northern uh, North America, um, be it Canada or the U.S. It has to be 10 years of age or newer, and it has to um, have been manufactured within North America. So under the NAFTA trade agreement. So um, a select few Toyotas fall into that, uh, Ford, Chevys, uh, Dodge, obviously. Um, unfortunately, what does not fall into that is a 2019 Jaguar F-Type, which is currently in my garage right now that I would love to have down in Mexico, but I can't take it down there. Because it wasn't built in North America. Correct. Interesting. And I don't want to get it impounded. 
And so what, so let's just say you did have, uh, you know, the, the Ford F-150 that is allowed to be imported. What would those fees look like? Um, a lot is of it, it like, is the value of the vehicle. Like a, yeah, it's like the value times like 7% or whatever it is, like a IVA sticker tax. Like a pretty Almost like a VAT amount. tax. It's, it's yeah, a fairly like, significant amount, um, but again, it's in pesos, so it's not really that big of an impact. Um, in a lot of cases, it's not worth it. Uh, the difficult thing is, though, unless you have significant cash resources, it's it's difficult to buy a vehicle in Mexico. Uh, we don't, you know, obviously have the same credit rating system. So you might have a 720 in the United States, but that doesn't mean anything in Mexico. So it's not like you're going to be able to go to finance anything. Right. Although, right, right. on that note, I actually did just come across two different loan products for houses um, where you can actually get finance using your U.S. credit and purchase in Mexico. Um, we have not used it yet, um, so I'll throw that caveat out there. But I have a few clients, and myself included, um, that sometime in the next few months are going to try that out. And then I'll have to let you know how that works so you can get that out to your viewers. For sure. Yeah, I think there's a big market for um, the financing of like expats homes uh abroad mm -hmm. in latin america but that's a whole tangent and um another uh random anecdote is i think that the car vehicle import thing there might be an exception in baja california where a permanent resident might be able to drive their foreign car in baja but nowhere else in mexico mm -hmm. something, it's that something 30 like miles that. from the border thing or 20 miles from oh, the really? border but all of baja is included in that fair enough Yes, yeah, so that's cool. Um, and then uh, another potential, this is a bit of an advanced topic, but another potential uh, benefit of being a temp resident and not a permanent resident uh, might actually be in terms of like tax liability. Um, even me bringing this up is sort of like a can of worms that would take a lot of time in this episode to sort of get into. But I would think that you know, let's just say you're a permanent resident, you're spending more than six months a year in Mexico, that kind of makes you like a full resident for residency based taxation purposes. Uh, I, I'm not an expert in these things, but that's my intuition. Whereas I think if you were just a temporary resident, it might be easier to make the case that it's not your your tax home or whatever, or at least you're gonna fly under the radar a little bit more. Um, and so potentially from like a, a residency based taxation purpose, uh, temp residency, um, might be better or let, you know, lowering your exposure to, uh, to some extent. It could, um, uh, but the caveat to that is your home country is still going to want to tax you, um, mm -hmm. particularly the U S cause it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're living in the U S or not, the IRS is going right. to go after you. Most of the rest of the world has residency-based taxation. So if you're spending um, more than 183 days in the country, they're going to try to get taxes out of you. If you're spending less than 183 days, say UK, Canada, they're not going to try to tax you. So you could do a, like a lot of my clients do what's called a trifecta. So they're going to have residency in three different countries. So therefore, they're not likely to spend more than 183 days per country thus eliminating the majority of their tax liability. Now, even right, if you yeah. don't have um, residency in three different countries, and again, assuming you're not a U.S. citizen, 
a lot of times it can be much, much cheaper to actually adopt Mexico as your tax residency. Because it's significantly less taxes, personal and corporate taxes, than what you would find in UK or Canada. Um, in the US, you can avoid a lot of it through like what we were talking about the last interview, $118,000 paid out by your corporation that's based anywhere in the world, and you happen to be living outside the US. So even for Americans, it can be tax advantageous to declare your tax residency in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, let, so let's just take the situation of like uh, a Canadian or a European. Obviously, Americans is more complicated or unique. Um, but a Canadian or European, if they were doing things smart, they would get residency in uh, a territorial tax country, let's just say Panama. But they, let's just say that they, they actually don't want to spend the whole year in Panama and they want to spend some time in Mexico. And they have they also have residency in Mexico, right? So that's like someone performing like a proper trifecta strategy. They have Mexico as maybe let's call it like a playground country to use five flags parlance. And then they have like uh, Panama or something as like a, a tax home flag, right? And I would think that uh, if you were a temporary resident in Mexico, you could potentially spend more than six months of the year and still maybe fly under the radar. Whereas, and then, you know, everything's kind of done through Panama or whatever it is. Um, but I, I think that if you're spending more than six months in Mexico as uh, with the perm residency, that's sort of changing that dynamic a bit. Absolutely. <clears throat> I don't actually know like what the requirements are as like a temporary resident. I don't know. Like if, do, do, would you know, like do, do people need to file or are, is tracking the days important as a temp resident as well? Or do they sort of get a pass on a lot of these things? A, a temporary residents get a pass. Um, and to be totally honest, permanent residents for the most part get a pass. Um, they Mexico and I'm, I'm not, advocating that you don't pay your taxes. I mean, obviously, you know, we're very much about staying on the legal side of governments um, with OCG. Um, but even as a permanent resident, there's, they don't have that massive long arm of the IRS that like the US does. So enforcement is next to nil. Um, now that being said, um, there's still tax loopholes and, and ways that you can reduce your taxable um, liability to Mexico to essentially zero is, you know, sourcing most of your income offshore on the internet. You don't have Mexican employees. You don't have a Mexican owned business. Uh, income is not derived from Mexico. So taxes in Mexico are, are really, really dependent more on how much of your income is derived from the local economy. Mm -hmm. I do like, and yes, that is how it seems to be in practice. But I don't know, I, I, obviously we don't want people to be in that kind of situation where they start treating Mexico like a territorial tax system when it's definitely not. Mm -hmm. So even clients that have tried to declare um, a lot of the tax agents and stuff in Mexico really aren't interested um, in seeing all of your offshore stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not, you know, it's not a true territorial tax, but almost almost operates that way 
for one thing, they don't have the, the personnel and um, staffing in order to be able to actually go through and see what you actually owe and try to figure it out, um, anything like that. So um, I've always been an advocate of, you know, like the U.S. wants 30-something percent of my income right now, which is ridiculous. But I don't mind paying 7 or 8% to a country like Mexico or a country like um, Georgia or uh, Serbia even. You know what I mean? Uh, to me, it's totally worth paying that 7 or 8% um, that they're asking for because you're actually getting something in return unlike the U.S., U.K., Canada, Western Europe in general. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Um, so hopefully that is helpful for people to, to, to hear um, a little bit about the differences between temp and, and permanent residency. There's some other potentially Ben, I'm trying to think what would be some of the benefits of being a permanent resident over temporary. Obviously, you know, it's, it's um, longer duration. It's probably easier to renew, things like that. But uh, the biggest uh, are probably bank accounts and owning property. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about how I, I don't know of any differences between temp and permanent in those categories. So please tell me. So a lot of banks, if you only have temporary residency, um, are, are not very keen on opening bank accounts for you, um, opening investment accounts for you. Um, you can rent property under a temporary residency. Mm -hmm. Um, but in a lot of situations, it's difficult to buy property on a temporary residency. Um, banks and whatnot uh, would much rather see you, you in a permanent resident. No, not um, just for transferring money into the country, cash, and, and purchasing a property. Um, huh. Particularly when you have to do it in a trust. Okay. Um, because you don't even need to be, you don't even need to have any residency or immigration status in Mexico to, to buy property in Mexico or to set up a trust. Correct. But the process is much, much more simplified. If you actually have your, your permanent residency, you pretty much flash your permanent residency card and you negate about 20 of the requirements. Um, a lot of the background checks and, um, the due diligence that they're going to do on where your money came from and how it came into the country. Mm -hmm. So being a permanent res resident negates a lot of that. Okay, interesting. And so a temporary resident would almost uh, go into that same bucket as someone with no status where they'd be uh, subject to greater like background checks and things like that? In our experience, yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, temp uh, coming back to the bank accounts, though, I like I, I've asked around quite a bit and uh, all the banks I've asked about it seem to have no problem opening a bank account for a temporary resident as long as you have uh, like a, a water bill. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of that depends on which bank you go to um, and also their international presence. Um, for a lot of the clients, they're trying to bank um, internationally because they've got like a Seashells or a Belize or a BVI um, corporation they're doing their banking out of Portugal or something like that. And then they need a local account. So if you've got permanent residency and you're sourcing your income from offshore and you got offshore accounts and you've got 
transfers coming in from offshore, then it just makes it a lot easier for the bank to approve everything for you and not hold your money for long periods of time when you get a large transfer if you're a permanent resident. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, this is definitely good stuff. I was not aware of some of this. Um, any other benefits of being a permanent resident? Uh, ability to apply for citizenship in a couple of years. And I, and I know yeah, not everybody wants segue. to do that, but <laughs> I, I cannot wait until the day that I've got Mexican citizenship and a Mexican passport. To me, that's going to be one of the best days of my life. Yeah, very good segue. So, you know, you can't, uh, you like one cannot apply directly from temp resident to citizenship. They have to become a permanent resident first. And I think, uh, I don't know if there's like a minimum time period as a permanent resident. If so, it's only one year, I think. Uh, it used to be, be five, but under the Regulario stuff, five years you're getting total it. perm or, sorry, go ahead. Oh, five years as a permanent resident before you, really? you were eligible to apply for citizenship. But under the new programs, um, we've seen it, it cut down to as short as a year. And never having had temporary residence, you've only had permanent residency for a year, and then they'll make it you make you eligible to apply for citizenship. That's extremely generous. Extremely. That's one of the reasons I recommend Mexico so much for my clients is it's so much easier to get permanent residency and citizenship and stuff done in this country than anywhere else in the world. And you're getting it done in, a, in an amazing country that people would actually want to live in. You're not doing it in uh, Nicaragua. Well, I liked, I liked Nicaragua. I, I'd buy a big old finca out there. No, I'm, I'm talking like any of the stands or anything like that. Um, it's sure, a country sure. you actually want to live in. Sure. No, that's that sounds extremely, extremely generous. It almost... If, if someone is a temporary resident and they're just saying, oh, I'll just wait out the four years then I'll become permanent and then it's just one year permanent, you know, five years to citizen. Well, if you could exchange your temp for a permanent like now and then cut off that whole temp period and just start sort of uh, waiting that one or maybe two years for Mexican citizenship and that ups the timeline by two, three years. I would, I would definitely say that would be worth the legal costs of, of the conversion. I would agree. And then the other thing to consider is Western countries are, are trying to crack down on this. Um, you see them doing it with Russian citizens currently, um, those that hold residency permits in other countries. Um, look at what Canada was doing, freezing assets of its people. Um, the U.S. is trying to make it extremely difficult for um, dual citizenship holders to for taxes. And also, if you ever decide to renounce your U.S. citizenship, they're going after Malta for their um, dual citizenship program. They've, they've gone after uh, the Caribbean in the past. Yep. These big Western that. countries want to keep you inside of their tax net. They do not want mm -hmm. you escaping to these other tax havens, as they like to call it. Um, and they'll make up all kinds of excuses. You know, it's. Russian oligarchs today, but, you know, last year it was only criminals and drug traffickers and human traffickers go and get second passports and have residency in tax havens. It's not true. I know hundreds and hundreds of businessmen that with legitimate businesses that do this every day. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> eventually these Western countries are going to have their way. And in the last couple of years, mainly during all the COVID thing, um, 
they've really, really been pushing these other countries hard to start getting rid of these programs or start making like residency and things like that much more difficult to attain. So what I've been telling people is, particularly in Mexico right now, you have the best opportunity of your life to get it done now, because in the future, you may not have this option. 100%. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of doors close. We're seeing, um, like you said, pressure on some of the citizenship by investment programs and all the residency programs that are out there. They just keep making it a little bit incrementally harder every year. They up the income requirement. They up, they, you know, add a couple of new things you need. It's, it's just never really going to get easier. Like, yeah, some, some programs will ideally hopefully come along and say, you know what, we're going to streamline this hardcore. We're going to make it super, super simple. Um, but definitely the trend is, you know, for the, for 200 companies that aren't bucking the trend, it's going to be making it harder. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then, so uh, one uh, question I had about the perm, permanent residence of citizenship track uh, that we've discussed, uh, we, we actually touched on this in our first episode as well, is that um, I think you mentioned that there's no actual physical presence requirements for becoming a citizen um, through this path. And to help tee up this question, um, I understand that. So uh, for the the baby path <laughs> where you can have a baby in Mexico and become an instant permanent resident in Mexico by having a baby, if you want to then become, if those parents want to then become citizens in Mexico, my understanding is they have a physical presence requirement of 18 of the next 24 months in order to qualify for citizenship. So if you did that baby residency uh, to citizenship path, apparently that is physical presence requirements from what I understand. But it seems like these other tracks might not have a physical presence requirement. And that's one of the other reasons that I recommend Mexico so much for my clients is unlike almost every other country in the world, it does not have any on the ground residency requirements while you're uh, a temporary or a permanent resident on your path to citizenship. Uh, almost every other country requires you to be there. Some of them are only a week. Some of them are six months. Some of them require you to spend the majority of the year in that country in order to maintain your residency. Mexico went the absolute opposite direction and said, we don't care if you're here or not. Come in, pay our fines and fees. Um, you know, get your residency card and we'll see you in three to five years when you want to reapply. Yep. And yeah, there, there's kind of two pieces to it. There's physical presence to maintain the residency. So for example, in Panama, you have to spend like two days every two years in Panama to maintain the residency, but that's not really going to put you citizenship track because Mm-hmm. Uh, at least in Latin America, it's not it's not just, okay, like the boxes have been checked, boom, here's your stamp, here's your passport. It's more it's more of sort of like a holistic uh, approach where you're sort of like judged based on your ties. And they kind of look at like, you know, what are the ties here? Does this person own property? Is this person married? Does this person like have a job and income in the country? And they're sort of like looking at this sort of like holistic picture 
to see if it's someone that they want to be a citizen to see has this person like made a significant um, investment in integrating themselves and integrating into the country. And so you see it working that way in Panama, in Uruguay, in Paraguay, lots of different places are kind of like that where um, you really have to like show that you made an effort. Um, and so kind of what's cool about this Mexico program is it sort of seems to stand in contrast to that where, uh, uh, it, 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 yeah, it doesn't seem to have as much of a physical presence requirement and it doesn't seem to be like this big whole, like holistic integration type vibe. <laughs> right. Um, the other thing that I'll touch on real quick is, is most of these other countries require an extensive test in order to get your citizenship. You have to prove that you are basically fluent in whatever language it is that that country speaks. Um, you have a probably better knowledge of the country's history than a natural born citizen does. Um, whereas in the case of Mexico, um, for the couple of clients that we've managed to take them all through citizenship so far, the Mexican citizenship test is a basic understanding of Spanish and a basic knowledge of Mexican history. Yeah. I, I I don't think that'll be like a big issue for people. I mean, if you're going to naturalize, you should probably know at least like when the revolution was and a couple things. Like it's not that big a deal, I feel. Although obviously it does take a little bit of time to to probably study for it, but I find for a lot of countries like they've been using the same questions for like years and years and you know, there's, it's all there's on the internet. Info. Yeah, there's kind of some in, info on the internet about <clears throat> what it's about and you just kind of know like, you know, know the main rivers and and stuff like that. Um, okay. Another quick question about this. So you've said that, you know, some people, there's an indication that you can apply for, uh, the naturalization after one year of permanent residency for some people, it's like two years after, I mean, where does this indication come from? Like, how do you kind of know if you can apply, uh, for naturalization or not? I and M will tell you. So, um, in our case, we'll set uh, our client up with one of our lawyers in either one of those locations. Um, they'll go handle all of the paperwork and communication with the INM. Um, and you know, obviously, they're attempting to get the least amount of permanent residency possible for our clients. But ultimately, INM will come back and say five years, three years, two years, one year. Uh, we have, as of yet, had an INM agent that was willing to go with none, but we're still hoping. <laughs> Gotcha. And so for the citizenship stuff, is it different? So residencies can be processed in the state. So in Baja, in Quintana Roo, et cetera. Um, are are uh, citizenship naturalization processes all done in Mexico City or, or is a, a portion of that done at the state level as well? Um, from what we've had to deal with so far, um, any INM um, in any state can actually handle it for you. Now, ultimate approval comes from, um, you know, federal government, but you're swearing in and all of the paperwork is going to get handled at a state level. Okay. That's cool. That kind of makes it, uh, makes it easier for the person. They don't have to travel to Mexico city. And it also makes it easier in the sense that, you know, you're dealing with the same office with which you've probably built a bit of a relationship, uh, both you and, and your lawyer. So they'll kind of know who you are a little bit more. They'll have your records on file and mm -hmm. you'll have a bit more of a personalized interaction. Yep, exactly. 
Okay, sweet. Um, yeah, that that all that all sounds awesome. Uh, I know we were almost thinking about talking a couple, about a couple different countries in this episode, but you know what? Like we've already done an hour on Mexico. This is pretty much just the Mexico episode, and I'm happy with that because this has been an extremely um, high value episode. I'm trying to think what else when it comes to uh, Mexico and citizenship, residency, things like that. Is there anything else we haven't covered? Any uh, important topics that we should uh, touch upon? Let's talk about cost real quick. Um, so there's two options to do this. One, you can do it all entirely on your own. Uh, set up your own consulate appointments, um, get all of your own documents translated and apostilled. Um, you know, make your own INM appointment within 30 days to go down to Mexico. Uh, and all of that honestly will cost you less than a thousand dollars. I'm not counting your airfare and hotel and lodging when you're in Mexico, because you're going to stay there three to five weeks. Um, if you go through a lawyer, it's typically going to cost you 3000 to 5000 depending on um, how, you know, your case, your individual cases um, and how long it takes. If you go through us, um, we have um, an option where for 1500 bucks, um, that's not counting your, um, your legal fees and your INM, um, fees and fines. Uh, but we'll walk you through, which to be totally honest is essentially what we just did in this interview, but we'll walk you through the entire process. Uh, we'll help you fill out all the paperwork. Um, we will put you in contact with our team on the ground. Um, yeah. so the, the biggest thing is, you know, that they're trustworthy, just picking somebody randomly off the internet um, is a good way to lose your money. And I don't care if it's Mexico, Belize, Georgia, Romania, it doesn't matter. Um, there's a there's a lot of scams in this space. So probably the biggest benefit we provide is we know and we have teams in place down there to keep you and your money safe. And often so, it's like a shorter, a shorter processing time between let's say thank god even if someone was able to uh so there's a couple reasons that you would want to uh work with a lawyer or work with a team one is if you make any sort of mistake with your paperwork you'll have to start again from scratch and you might need to go get new papers things like that um so that's a huge time saver and potential and re reduction of risk another one is uh your application might get processed faster so after being submitted, it might, it might be in a different stack that gets processed faster because it it's in the, because be. it's in the people we have relationships with stack versus the random broke people stack. Um, so your, your thing is going to get processed faster as well. And if there's any mistakes or things like that, um, there's uh, let's just say like, let's just say randomly, like they, they spelled your middle name slightly wrong. Uh, when the residency uh, gets issued. Well, if you have a relationship and you have a team of lawyers, they can probably get that corrected without too, too much issue. But if you did it yourself, uh, that would be another like huge, huge headache. There's a good possibility it would be round file and you'd have to start again. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, in my experience using the lawyer, I think there are potentially maybe some countries 
where you could do it yourself. And I'd say, look, you know, just like do it yourself, save the money, blah, blah, blah. I'd say Mexico is definitely one of the countries where you probably should use someone. Like it's not going to cost that much money. And uh, the relationships make a huge, huge difference. I would agree. Although I'll add, there's very, very few countries in the world that I would go about it on my own. Uh, we have teams of lawyers and agents and things in place in the majority of the countries that we um, help clients with. And that's the only way to get things done. Trying to go in blind and randomly pick somebody and, and hope everything turns out for the best is, is not a great plan of action. Right. And you would need to speak Spanish to do it yourself for sure. Yeah. So, if you don't speak Spanish, yeah. they make it a lot more difficult for you. <laughs> yeah. So there's, um, you know, I guess a couple of reasons. So we talked a little bit about the cost. How much did you say it would cost if you did it yourself? Like maybe like a thousand bucks? Less, less than a thousand dollars. I want to say like the filing bucks. fee, 47 bucks to go to your consulate appointments, like 235 to file for your residency. <clears throat> Another 360 something dollars for the actual card. And then some little miscellaneous yeah. 15, 20, $25 fees. All in all, it's yeah. under a thousand dollars. But it's a massive headache that takes months. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to send all that paperwork out yourself. You'd have have to dedicate a lot of time. You'd have to have your perfect Google Drive file and all this type of Mm -hmm. stuff. And you'll be be scrolling Facebook groups for hours, like looking for random nuggets of information. So don't – I definitely don't recommend that just to save like two or three grand. No, it's not worth it. Not worth it. Okay, so costs – Around a thousand bucks if you do yourself. If you hire a lawyer, looking at, um, I know people that all in it, it costs less than two thousand bucks. So call it like two, but you know whatever. Call it fifteen hundred, two thousand, three thousand, five thousand. Sort of depends. What you know, in order to get factors. the better um, permanent residency uh, time periods. So if you went with the the standard um, and you may or may not have to do your consulate visit, but you're going to hold your permanent residency for five years prior to being eligible for citizenship, that literally is the cheapest option when you're dealing with a lawyer. The other options, the three, two, and one year permanent residency options, um, there is a substantial upcharge for those. And I'm not 100% sure if it goes to the lawyer, goes to the INM agent, goes to the government. I tend not to ask too many questions about that kind of thing. But there is a little bit of an upcharge. Yeah, I could see them wanting – I could see permanent costing a little bit more than temporary. Let's put it that Mm -hmm. way. Okay. That's cool. Um, So talked about costs. Um, Oh, maybe we could talk a little bit about specifically for people who are – nearing retirement age and they're looking to mexico specifically as a retirement destination um, and they're concerned maybe about um, getting access to their pension when they're down there they're concerned about uh, real estate purchases they're concerned about what's going to happen to my 401k do i lose my social security there's a lot of like sort of retirement specific questions and i think retiring people is actually probably one of the bigger um, markets for these services. So what, what are you say, seeing as some of the biggest, um, some of the biggest concerns that, uh, people in this demographic are facing and, and what are you, what are your thoughts on that? 
Probably the rising costs of uh, proving solvency in Mexico. So every year Mexico increases the amount and it's the uh, minimum wage of Mexico multiplied by some number. Um, so obviously minimum wage in Mexico goes up every single year. Um, but what we've figured out is depending on what consulate you go to for your initial appointment when you're trying to get like your pensionado rentista visa, um, mm -hmm. Phoenix consulate wants you to prove that you have $4,300 a month income. Now, that income can be Social Security, VA uh, benefits, disability, uh, long-term annuity payouts, um, retirement payouts from large corporations. It, it doesn't really matter where the funds are coming from, so long as you can show a track record of them being deposited in your account for at least a year and the deposits have to equal or exceed the minimum uh, required by the U.S. By, by the Mexico government. Now, that being said, like I said, Phoenix Consulate wants $4,300 a month. Uh, we found out that the the Washington D.C. consulate is still operating on the old rules, and they only want to show you to show twenty three hundred dollars a month. So there's something to be said about contacting multiple consulates. Now, now realize that you you may have to travel in order to take advantage of it. Um, but if your income is really close to the minimum level, you may want to look at other consulates just to make sure that your application goes through. Um, and unlike the majority of countries, you can actually go straight into permanent residency that way. Okay. And so they can, you can go straight into permanent through the, uh, would this be the rentista or just through a, a solvency path? Oh, rentista has the solvency. Is yeah, this rentista or rentista that we're talking about? Uh, rentista. Okay. The pensionado is almost exactly the same um, uh, monetary requirements. Let's see, residente permanente. And so this can be earned income as well, right? From a job? Yes. But if it's earned income from a job, um, depending on the consulate and depending on the individual agent that you're talking to, they may or may not want proof that this income will continue if you were to move to Mexico. Right, right, right. And I think you mentioned that in the previous episode. But that's still cool because that actually works for, for digital nomads and anyone that works online. Um, um, maybe I can come back to that uh, after we finish some, some more thoughts about retirement. Yeah, um, the, the biggest thing about that is there's no actual rate age requirement. So you don't have to be 65 or older to qualify for any of those programs. Mm -hmm. You just have to have minimum income coming in every single month. It's just typically applied to retirees. So that's why the program's called that. Definitely. Um, I think another big concern for uh, retirees would be healthcare. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you've had clients ask about that. Um, how's the healthcare in La Paz? How's the healthcare in Katana Roo? What, what does health insurance look like? Um, yeah. So in my experience, the healthcare in Mexico is at the same level or above the majority of what you're going to get in the U.S. Uh, a lot of the doctors and nurses are actually U.S. educated, speak excellent English. Um, and medical tourism is huge all around the world. But Mexico in the last few years has actually become a very, very popular spot for that just because of the quality of care, 
Um, we're talking first world technologies, better cancer screening and cancer treatments than the U.S. has available. They don't have a lot of the same issues with the FDA that we have here. So they have access to a lot of different treatments and medicines that we won't get here in the U.S. Um, and the cost is 10%, 15% in some cases. I mean, I had a, a client, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a client that had a cancer diagnosis here in the U.S., and they were looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars. So instead of doing everything in the U.S., they went and flew to about half a dozen different places in the world, one, to make sure that they actually did have cancer because a big issue in the U.S. is doctors telling you you have cancer and it comes to find out you never did, although they just made a bunch of money off you. <laughs> is that a thing? I did not know that. that. That is absolutely a thing right now. So they flew all around the world and found the doctor that they felt the most comfortable with that was an agreeable price. And what would have cost over $200,000 in the U.S. cost them $36,000 for better care and treatment. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I actually have a buddy that lives like on the Texas-Mexico uh, border. And uh, they go to Texas to get all their prescriptions and stuff. Same so, here in and, Arizona. And any like x-rays or anything. So if you need like, yeah, if, if you need anything from x-rays to dental work to mm -hmm. like random pill prescriptions, most people go to Mexico to get that done. Yeah, exactly. Same thing here. There's more Americans in Algodonas getting dental work done than Mexicans. That's it's a town literally right over the border um, here in Arizona. So random question. Have you been to Nogales? Yes, several times. I've gone through that port of entry a bunch of times. I used to live down by Tucson. Uh huh. I, I've heard, I haven't been there, but I've heard that Nogales is actually a really, really nice town. This is on the Mexican side. And if you cross into the American side, it's like the worst town ever. And it's, so it's like, it's kind of a funny dynamic where the, the Mexican side is actually nicer than the American side. <clears throat> Yes and no. Um, some of the coolest houses I've ever seen in Arizona uh, are actually in Nogales on the U.S. side. Beautiful old 1800s houses and things. Uh, beautiful woodwork and all that. And cheap, like you know, seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars for a house, which in the U.S. right now is is unbelievable. Uh, the average home price in Arizona is three hundred fifty thousand dollars right now. So it, to get that quality of house at that price is is absolutely amazing, but there's not much in that town and almost everybody lives on the Mexican side and then goes to work on the U S side. Hmm. Yeah. Random aside there. Okay. And then I actually had another question about income. So, uh, I guess we, th this is going to be a question about other countries in Latin America. So it's very cool that with the Mexican program, you can use earned income, um, to apply for some of these visas. Cause that works perfectly for digital nomads. Um, I've been looking at the programs in Guatemala and Nicaragua and some of the Central American countries, uh, things like that. And uh, it seems that at least on paper, they don't want to see earned income. They really want to see a steady source of passive income, be it a certificate of deposit, uh, it could be real estate rental returns. Uh, it could be a, a pension or social security. Do you know anecdotally um, of any countries where uh, you could actually apply with earned income 
And then therefore, uh, it would be more advantageous for like younger digital nomad types. All of those places. So here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> just because a country's website says one thing, in reality, it's often quite different. So when you're talking to their version of INM and you're showing them earned income, um, you, it might require a slight argument with the INM agent or a $50 fine that you pay in order for your in earned income to qualify. Nine times out of 10, there's really not going to be an issue with it. Because in reality, these countries want and need your money inside those countries. So they're not going to turn people True. away based on some regulation. <clears throat> so one of the other reasons I like LATAM so much is there's some common sense involved. You go to US, UK, Canada, <clears throat> the, the agent's going to look at the black and white of the book and you're not going to get any common sense. It is so over-regulated in these areas that there is no human connection really left. They cannot go outside the black and white. Whereas places like LATAM, there's still the, the absolute human connection. And, you know, see how sometimes that human connection might require a $50 fine to the government in order to use that your in, earned income to qualify. But you have that option. And I, and I like living in a place with options. That's awesome. Yeah, I like the sound of that. And I, I kind of generally thought that to be the case, but I was wondering if, um, you know, any places that might be better than others. We, we, we actually re, uh, briefly mentioned this in the first episode in Colombia and how in Colombia that might be the case as well, depending on who you get um, as your agent, they might accept earned income uh, for the, the rentista style visa in Colombia, right? Yes. And a lot of that comes down to what lawyer you choose and what kind of relationship that they've developed with um, the INM office, the immigration office. Because mm -hmm. a lot yeah. of times they can make something go through that on paper, there's no way it should. Makes sense. And then once you're in, you're in. Because if you, let's just say that uh, one of these visas, it's often called a rentista visa. Um, and let's just say that leads to like a temporary resident. Once you're in on the temp, it doesn't really matter what your income sources are anymore. Like you'll get, you'll get the permanent uh, when your time comes. So on paper, it actually says you have to requalify every single time um, that you reapply. So whether you got it for a three-year or four-year or five-year, you're supposed to reapply with new income documents in order to prove that you're making the amount of requested by the government based on the minimum wage increases. In our experience, nobody's been asked for that. Once you've already have a permit, you're golden. Okay, interesting. Yeah, this is uh, this is good stuff. Um, this is <laughs> I think people will find this pretty interesting because, and, and what's cool is you can basically use that same income source like several times. So. Uh, like it's not like you need four thousand for Colombia, and then another four thousand for Nicaragua, and then another four thousand. You can just use that same income source to qualify for several different programs. Oh yeah, and then start looking farther overseas, and then start hitting up Eastern Europe. So that way you can go spend summers in you know Eastern Europe, and go spend winters in Latam, or just go to South America, where it's the reverse uh, hemisphere. So right. You can, go to, you can go to Mar del Plata, Argentina. You go to Punta del Este, Uruguay. You go to Brazil. 
you go to Chile. It's a good yep. time. I had a lot of fun at Argentina. It was also some of the coldest places I've ever been to. I rode a motorcycle down to Tierra del Fuego. That was a miserable trip. It's, it's, it's something that if you're a long distance motorcyclist, you have to check off your list. But that was a miserable trip. I don't. I have no desire to ever do that one again. I don't think uh, you've ever mentioned that you did that. Where did you Where did you start? You did the whole Pan America, or so uh, Cartagena, uh, Colombia. Um, I picked up. So I had already ridden all the way down to um, Guatemala. Put the bike on um, a ship and shipped it to, to Cartagena. Then I had to go back to the states. You know, go back to work for a few months. Um, and then flew back down to Cartagena, got my bike out of storage, and rode it all the way down to Tierra del Fuego. I had started up in Washington, up in Seattle. But I've also ridden um, across Africa, and I've ridden a lot of um, Eastern and Western Europe as well. All on a bike. Yep. Whoa. Cartagena to Tierra del Fuego. That's a good ride. Yeah, that, that took a little while. And it was everything was amazingly beautiful until you get to the Altiplano, Argentina, and then it just turns miserable. Huh. And <laughs> this is almost like the outro, but um, and that wait, where have you done in Africa? Um, so I started in Johannesburg, uh, rented a bike. Um, I've been to, and not all on the same trip. Um, Nairobi, Ethiopia. The Z one that I always forget where I got to see the lions, um, Egypt, um, Guinea, the other French colony that I never remember the name of, um, probably a couple other places too. (laughs) I enjoyed that a lot. Ethiopia was probably the most beautiful country I've been to in Africa. Yeah. A lot of people like it. Yeah. The, The Z one that I can never remember the name of though. They put us in a glass box in the middle of the night on a game preserve and uh, uh, Pride of Lions comes through. So they got all the night vision and all that stuff for us. And you get the big male lion and, and he's rearing up on his, his hind feet and he's smacking the glass and stuff, right? And the whole thing's rattling. And that was a little scary. And then you realize that the female lionesses are up on top of the glass and they're smelling every single corner you know, every edge and you know that their brain is working. They're trying to figure out a way to get inside just to eat you. And that's when it was really got scary. That sounds like a vibe. It was a good time. (laughs) So let's start wrapping up this episode. Um, Where uh, can people find you if they're interested in uh, working with you, working, looking for your services? Offshore consulting group, LLC.com is my website. Um, I am not particularly techie and there is a few things that I've, I've been told that don't work correctly on my website. So I've got a website guy trying to fix that for me. So if you go there and it's not perfect, I'm sorry. (laughs) Twitter is probably absolutely the best way. Um, and that is, you would think I would know my own Twitter handle, uh, at Martin to me 13. So I just use my personal Twitter. Yep. And to me is T O O M E Y. Correct. Cool. Uh, random question. Where do you get, like, where do most of your clients come to you from? Like, how do they hear about you? 
right now, a lot of them come off of Twitter. Um, but right now, the majority of my clients are Canadian. The Canadians are so scared of their government right now that they are they're fleeing in droves. Anybody with the, the money is getting out. And the U.S. isn't far behind. I mean, we got still a substantial amount of Americans leaving, but uh, Canadians are leaving in a flood. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Martin, this has been uh, an awesome episode. I think we'll, people will have gotten a lot, a lot of episode, uh, a lot, a lot of value out of this episode. Big deep dive on Mexico. I'm still processing because we went over a lot of good stuff and I have a couple things that I learned. I learned a lot on this episode and I have a few things I'm going to be following up with you about. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you having me on again. Um, as always, it's, it's a great pleasure to, to talk to you and to reach out to your audience. Um, and I hope we be, uh, get to do this again in the future. Absolutely, man. Uh, so thank you for being our first repeat guest. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast here with Martin Toomey. Thanks for watching.